If you love this podcast, help us spread these stories to more women by following us on Instagram at Simply Amazing Podcast and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes and the Instagram bio. So it would mean the world to us to help share this message. Thanks. One day I was like, why do they have to define me? Why can't I define me? Do I give all the power to the world and the people to have to say what they have to say or to have to define me? Why can't I define me? Why can't I know me? I'm tired. I need to become me. I know there's someone inside me. I can find myself. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to She's Simply Amazing, a podcast all about sharing the stories of women that can inspire us to live a huge, beautiful, and amazing life. I'm your host, Carrie Brinton. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of She's Simply Amazing. I'm super excited for our guest today. She's going to be telling us a story that it's definitely one we have not covered on this podcast before, and I think it's going to be very educational, very inspiring, and very touching for you. My guest today is Miss Desange Quenyhair. Did I say that right? Desange Quenyhair? Yeah. <laughs> Close. Close. <laughs> Close. <laughs> you say it. Okay. How do you say it? Quenyhair. I'm not going to get that right. So, okay. <laughs> we have Desange with us. I got that part right. She is from DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, or sometimes referred to as the Congo. And she's going to share with us her story today of her life there, her life in a refugee camp, and the experience of coming to Utah as a refugee. And I'm excited to hear all about that experience and what what that is like and currently, she is the CEO of an organization called Undefeated, and it's an organization she put together to help teach and inspire people to really believe in themselves and know that you're of worth, I think, is maybe the primary message of that organization. She's a public speaker. She's a model, and she's a student at the U right now. She's obviously a very successful person in her own right, but has overcome quite a bit to get where you are, right? Yep. Yep. It has been a long one. It has been. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm really grateful and I'm excited to hear your story. So tell us about your family situation right now. And then I think we'll back up and start with your childhood. But tell us who you are right now. Introduce yourself to us. Hey, everyone. My name is Desange Quinhera. I am originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I came here with my aunt, my two older brothers, my older sister, my twin brother, and my little sister. Currently, I'm a student at the University of Utah. My older brother and my older sister, they're a student here too. They're graduating this year. And my little sister, she's graduating from high school. And I am so excited to be here and talk to you today. And Desanj, how old are you? You're 19? Yeah, I'm 19. You're young. You've accomplished a lot. I, <laughs> I definitely didn't have an inspirational organization at 19. You're impressive. Thank you. So what if we just start at the beginning of your story? Tell us about your life in the DRC and what you remember from it. What I remember there is really vividly, it's not like clear. I was I was two years old when I left home. I left home due to the war, um, the war that was started between tribes. My mother is was Muhammad. I mean, was Mulendu, and my father was Muhammad. So those two tribes, they don't like each other. The conflict between of the land and the cows. So because of that, ended up bringing up a war, so we had to flee to Uganda. I only remember that the journey for going to Uganda was the longest journey, to be honest. Sleeping during the day, working during the night so you don't get caught and killed. So we remember like having a lot of people like going through the groups, remembering that my little sister was young, was crying. I didn't like really grow up there. Since I left there, I haven't been back and it hasn't like really been stable to this point those two tribes are still in conflict so it has been kind of tough for sure like not going back to where all your roots has started or trying to learn also like since i'm still young it has been hard my aunt is like oh no we'll just go back there to visit when you're older stuff like that so it has been like i want to go back i want to learn more i want to experience more where my roots has begun that's where all my family started, and it will be a great opportunity for me to go back, for sure. 
Yeah. So do you still feel a connection to that country as your homeland or you're trying to establish that connection? I feel more connection with Uganda because we flew to Uganda and I like basically lived in Uganda my the rest of my life to this point. But that's my home. That's my roots. It will never change. Maybe there's still other people there that we don't know about. So it's just, I don't have a strong connection for it as I have it for Uganda, but I do have love for it because that's where my roots began. You were two years old when you guys left DRC. How old was your aunt when she took you? My aunt took us in when she was 14. Were there adults with you? Like in the refugee camp? No, in, in your journey from DRC to Uganda. Well, there was a lot of people, like everyone is like running to survive. During the nights when you're like starting to walk, you have to go in like kind of a family group so you don't get separated away from each other. So my brother that time, they were young, like 15, 16 them carrying my my sister my little sister was just a baby we were just six of us we didn't have like an adult with us your dad you said died in the war yeah my dad passed away during the war that's what i was told and you said your mom died in childbirth with your younger sister yeah she passed away when she was giving birth to my young sister so that journey was a 14 year old girl your brother who would have been no, my sister was four then. My older sister was four. Oh, your, I'm sorry. Your then. aunt was 14, right? So we met my aunt in the refugee camp. We, she didn't run with us. She took her own separate ways. We got in the refugee camp where everyone is trying to see, oh, did anyone survive? So one of my brother's friends was like, oh, I saw your aunt here. She's here. And it took us about like, because of like the crowd and a lot of people, it took us about two weeks to find her in the refugee camp when we got there. So you made a two-week journey on foot with just children. The journey from Congo to Uganda was more than two weeks. When we got in the refugee camp in Uganda, it took us about two weeks to find my aunt in the refugee camp because it was big. A lot of people trying to settle in. So you made a journey from Congo to Uganda just basically as kids? There were How old was the oldest kid that was with you other than your big group but like in your family unit how old i remember the one my brother told me he was 16 then i think 16 but i'm not sure about it maybe really young so for sure yeah so you made your way to uganda what's the experience like walking into a refugee camp what does it look like are there people there to help you what do you do when you get there for us, like settling in was kind of hard. We were not very liked because we came in those two warring tribes where mixed blood. So each side kind of like was pushing and the other, we go on the other side, like they were pushing. It was kind of a little hard and people already knew us back home. My family was big, so they knew us really well. Settling in was hard. They gave us a one bedroom for seven people, a house and one bathroom. At night, me and my aunt would like, my the older girls, we were four of us, would sleep in the bedroom and the guys would sleep on the living room and in the morning they will get their stuff off. So settling in was really hard. I would say like it was, it was not, it was hard, but at the same time, like we were grateful we have that little, like other people did not have that. So my aunt kind of like told us like what happened home, like that way she ended up running away. Settling in was a bit tough, I would say. It felt like that was going to be the rest of our life, for sure. Like even like as a child, we still like had those like nightmares. Like if you, for example, like I watched a scary movie or something, like I'll still like have that blush of nightmares. I won't say it was the easiest thing, but I will say I was lucky enough to have that letter because other people were not able to get that. What is a refugee camp like? I don't think we get a full picture of what that looks like. To me, I sometimes think of it as it's just this layover where you go, there's the Red Cross there, they sign you up, and they immediately transfer you to a safer place. And I know that's not the reality of it. So is a refugee camp like a full city that has amenities within it? Is it just home structures? Like, can you find a job? Because you said you were there for seven years, right? Yeah. So we lived in the refugee camp for five. 
we lived there for four years because it was no longer safe for us. The offices of refugee moved us to the big city of Kampala. So in the refugee camp, there's no jobs. Like you basically have to create your own jobs. You have to dig your own gardens if possible. The Unirukshar, the migration office, they will give food every month, but that food will not even like last two weeks or three weeks. You may be like a big family of like seven or a big family of 10. The food they provide is not enough. So you dig, there's no jobs. Basically, there's a lot of entrepreneurs creating their own little things, selling tomatoes, selling gas. It's not a full city. It's like, to me, it's more like of a village. It was like just a land that people came and created their small village in there. Basically, I won't say like you apply for a job and you get it. There's no such thing. You have to create your own thing. There's small businesses for sure. Kind of roadside stands selling like life-sustaining type things like food or coal or... Are the refugees camps, are they close to larger cities where you can pull from the amenities of larger cities? Or where, where, where are they located? It really depends with what country and what the refugee camps. Mine was close, but I would say to go to Kampala or like Chegegua. Chegegua would say about 30 minutes and going to another big, big city is a bit longer. We had like a district close by, which was like about 30 minutes if you rode a motorcycle. What about education opportunities? What was that like? Did you have education growing up? Not really. I won't say it was education. I did not care about school then. Didn't have interest at all in school compared to when I got here and my interest of school like grew. Because like we went to a refugee camp and a class, in one class, there would be like 200 kids. And all those 200 kids, only one teacher has to teach them. I don't know. I feel like I didn't have the motivation. And at the same time, me growing up, Growing up as being called meaningless girl, that like, what was my value? Go getting education anyways. Education opportunity is just like, I, it was just, oh, this is a school for refugee and you can go and learn there. But like nothing really kids learn, to be honest, at the end of the day. A kid would graduate without even knowing how to write. No resources, obviously no computers, probably yeah. no books. Yeah, only books and pens, pencils, that's it. Like, there's no such, like, computer, anything, like, labs, things that, like, kids would do in school. Mm-mm, no, there's nothing. I would assume it's similar to what I've seen in Zambia, where it's just lecture. And you basically mm-hmm. are learning whatever you can remember from that lecture. Yeah. Yeah. You said something. You said you were called meaningless girl. Yeah. Who called you meaningless girl? Tell me more about that. Basically, people. Growing up with having like a mother and a father's protection, that was like kind of hard. Even like parents, basically, like they would be like, oh, why would you go to school? Like you don't have meaningless, you don't, you're a meaningless girl. Like you don't have value. That kind of put me really low. People would say to in your face, not even to try to hide it. It was like, it made me not value myself. It made me, because like a lot of kids picked up on my siblings. So I was kind of like the mean girl. I had to protect them. Like I would fight back. I would be like, if they beat my little sister or anything happened, I would get in fights with people. I was like the master girl. Kids were scared of me. So Because of that, I feel like he ended up like giving people the opportunity. Oh, you're meaningless. You have no meaning. The only what you have is the diary that a man would pay to marry you. You'll never achieve achieve anything with your life. I kind of believed in that. They defined me with that. I kind of like let people define me instead of me trying to define me, instead of trying to ignore those negative voices. Which was like, the toughest moment for me to find myself again, to rebuild myself again, to know like my worth, I am valued, I am wanted. It was hard to feel like I was loved. Everywhere I went, I was the mean girl, I was the bad kid. It was crazy, but you know, like through it all, you know, you learn through it. I feel like if that did not happen, I would not be who I am. It would, it would have not pushed me, have not 
helped me find my value and my worth and my confidence in myself. That's so interesting. And it's a beautiful message. I mean, it's interesting that even within a refugee camp, even within an area where everybody in that in that community is suffering, everybody has run from tragedy. Everybody has very, very little, even within that structure, there's still social hierarchy. There was yeah. still prejudice against you because you didn't have parents, which is very interesting to me that that exists no matter what. I feel like that would always exist. At the end of the day, through my journey, I kind of like, oh, why do people talk to me about like this? Why do people don't like me? Then instead of like trying to find that out, I try, I try to please people. Like, I them, oh, let me do this for you. Let me do this for you. So you can like me. You can see me. I have a value. But at the end of the day, they didn't see that. It doesn't matter how much you please people. It doesn't matter how, oh, I'm going to do this so they can like me. Either way, people are always going to have opinion about you. Talk behind your back. It doesn't matter. The only thing is finding you, knowing you, like, and doing what you think is right instead of pleasing others. Because at the end of the day, those people are not doing it to please you. They're just, like, using you. They are, like, benefiting from you. Well, they're in survival mode, right? I'm sure you can look back on that now and look at those people that treated you that way and realize sometimes we use that as as a defense, right? So that we don't have to acknowledge how we feel. We don't have to acknowledge our own insecurities, our own traumas in life. We deflect it onto other people. And that's definitely what happened to you growing up. So you lived in a refugee camp. You said at some point you got resettled to a bigger city. What is the big picture process for ending up in Utah? How do you apply for that? How did you end up here? What does that look like? The process is really long. A process of coming to America is really long. Seven years of waiting and thinking, oh my. Some people wait 30. Some people wait 20. Even the people that And some people never make it. At the same time, they're still there even now. It's really lucky. It's really lucky if you get chosen. So you do interviews after interviews. In Aya, you may do one or twice. Some people may do zero. Some people may do one. Some people may go three years without even doing an interview. And what are they interviewing you for to see whether or not you're going to... They interview you to make sure like you're not a nationality of Uganda. You're not faking yourself to come to America. Yeah, so there's like, oh, tell your story. Does your story make sense to us? Eh? So they will let you wait for a bit and they'll call you in. Is your story, does it match your the last story you told? Mm? Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's kind of crazy. It's not a lot of so, compassion. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of compassion going on. That them were there, even like, I would say the manager, but they called him Commander, who like was the head of the office for the refugees. He was mean. Like, you go in the office, like, he'll slap refugees. It doesn't matter if your kids are in front of you. Like, you like you'd be like, really, like, that's my father. Why would you even like slap him in front of me? Like they did not have much mercy. I felt like in the office, they did things and they did hold back like some cases for refugees. If you did something bad, if anything incident happened, your case would be delayed. So because of us, our house was burned down and nice sleeping in it. We lost everything. In the camp? In the refugee camp, the one bedroom and one bathroom house was burned down. It was like, I remember me waking up, crying, shouting. I, the first thing I remember was hearing my aunt's voice. My aunt is screaming, run, get out of the house, run. That day she was sleeping with the baby, my little sister, who back then was seven, I think, screaming. She's grabbing her, running out of the room, and we are like running out of the house, like I ran on my older sister to go call a neighbor. I can remember being just in tears, just watching the house burnt as everything like burnt. And then, then in the morning, my aunt left. She went to the, the big city of Kampala to the higher office of the refugees, explaining what happened. And we like we slept off outside for about two weeks. And when my aunt came back, she took like we moved. They moved us to the refugee to the big capro of Uganda, Kampala. It was no longer safe in the refugee in the uh, refugee camp for us. Was like people did not like us. People always like had they never. I don't think they had 
good positive things about my family. Like my aunt got well with people because like she was she was not mixed blood, but my siblings and I we had a tough hard time to fit in because of mixed blood being like I mean between those two warring tribe and it was just kind of tough for us to fit in there. I have a question. How do people even know that you're mixed blood? Because it's not like we're talking about someone's coming from two different countries or two different ethnicities. You're just talking about two different tribes within the same country. Like, your ethnicity is exactly the same. So how do people even know? They can tell. They can definitely, definitely. Because, like, but... So I'm Muhammad. Most people think I'm Rwandanese because I look like Rwandanese. People can really tell by your face, by your features, they can tell. And for us, Mainali was that we looked more side of our dad hammers. It's just the thing Mainali was. People knew our family. As I said, my family back in Congo was big. A lot of people knew. People were more interested in it, I guess. When my father and my mother married, probably they had a wedding and a lot of people came. So from there, they knew that. So like people knew us and that like played a big part in it. So people just know. Because mostly, if you look at us, we look mostly like on our father's side. We look more like Mahema instead of our mom's side. So people can really, really tell. So the rumors going around and you kind of like, as being coming between both tribes, you cannot carry that on your shoulders, the burden of being, oh, you're the reason. People will say, oh, you're the reason why my parents died or you're the reason why this happened. You become the reason for everything. And I feel like during that time, people like try to find something to blame, to, be, to blame that one someone. And I guess in that refugee camp, we're the one to be blamed for the war. At the end of the day, thinking back then and remembering about it, it was, I felt like, now when I look back, I'm like, oh, I wish I knew this before. It was not my fault. It's their fault. But like, they're just trying to mourn it. So mourning it, they try to blame it on someone else. Wow. Interesting that you can now see that. But as a kid, you you just kind of took it in and believed it. Yeah. Back to that process. How you start, this the moment you get to the refugee camp, you start applying for relocation? When, the moment you get in the refugee camp, they say now, like they put your name, like they have computers. So to make sure who they have in the refugee camp, they keep track of people. And after that, you basically apply to come to America. So you go to the office, they help you apply, they ask you questions, you answer them, then they say, okay, we'll go back and we'll call you. Then you wait, then they call you, you go back. Like, I don't really know <laughs> what they do there. You go back. We used to go in the office and just sit in the chair, ask us questions, we answer, we leave. We'll call you next time. Questions would be like, okay, They'll sometimes they'll take our aunt out of the room, then we'll just be kids. Okay, now tell us. They'll be like, maybe your aunt has trained you to say this, but your story may be different. They'll ask you questions and you answer them. Um, if you answer them wrong, then basically you felt. If your story doesn't match the last story you told, you felt. You will have to start with the process again. You're treated like a criminal. Mm -hmm. it, it was tough. <laughs> it's like your story have to match because they, they. I feel like the office, the officers, though that like the nationality, like the nations, like the Ugandan people would like try to apply to pretend to be refugee to come to America. So that's why they made it like really hard. The process takes a really long time. That you go back and forth. Uh, a lot in the interviews. Then after that, like they usually at the end, you usually have a check medical where you sleep in a hotel for like two weeks. You take Marelia pills, which are so mm -hmm. cold. <laughs> yeah. You take them like to make sure like they check all your body that you don't have any kind of dis diseases that you may bring here and affect people. It was like really... At the end of it, it's like really interesting process. You go, you take all your food, all your clothes. They have to check all your body to make sure like you don't have infectious disease. So it gets really, that process is just back and forth with interviews. Sometimes like the offices can stalk you to make sure like you're telling the truth. 
for us, like they did that. <laughs> they did that for sure. Especially when we got in the refugee uh, in the big city of Kampala, the office paid for a house for about a year or two years. Then we had to move out because like we do not have the money to pay for it anymore. So we started sleeping outside. Then when my aunt went in the office and was like, oh, we are sleeping outside. We don't have a house anymore. Like we're sleeping in containers, like the containers that they use for the trucks. To ship the things. shipping containers, yeah. So we would sleep in those ones because they sold them. And we, it's just for us, like we would sneak there. So people don't see us going there because like if they see us going there, we'll get killed. So that like at five in the morning, we'll have to wake up so early. Like it was like Rick King and my brother, my twin brother used to have asthma. His asthma sometimes at night is really bad because like it gets really cold and sometimes we start breathing hard and no one could sleep. We just wake up and stay ahead. <laughs> like, it used to be crazy, but yeah, basically... When I look back, it has just been a long journey. And one day the office did start, the office people did start us for the immigrations. They did uh, start us trying to see, is she really telling the truth? And they find out like we're telling the truth. And like, they took my aunt, show us the container that you sleep in. We're oh like, my we're gosh. Like, yeah, it's crazy. It's like insult like, on top of insult. Yeah. What was the feeling like when you find out that you're going to America? And Utah. <laughs> we had like, so the first one, they told us a visa came. We did all the workshops to prepare us what to expect when we come. They told us we are going to go to Utah. So like, then my aunt was like, oh, so we are going to go live in Salt now. <laughs> <laughs> Salt Lake? That sounds awful. Did you, you have probably had no idea where Utah was, right? No, nope. we didn't even choose the place. They chose us the place they told that. They told my aunt, like, oh, Utah, it, was a, it would be a great place for the kids to grow up and like, kind of like find themselves. They're like, oh, Utah is a place that's growing right now. They may have more opportunity there. So they can, they said, like, it's safe for kids. So they uh, resettled us here. It was coming to America for me, I didn't believe it. Like, it was like, after all these years, today's the day. I'm like, eh. My, my elder sister was like, I don't believe it neither. So we just stayed there. We packed up. They gave us the bags. We packed all the bags. We came to the hotel. We started taking the medication. Then the day came. We get in a huge bath with a lot of people come to America. We go to the airport. I sit in the airplane. But maybe we're going to America now. <laughs> <laughs> Had you ever been on an airplane, right? I have never. That was my first time. <laughs> that was my first time I was so like I didn't know I was not like scared that I didn't feel anything I didn't even feel off like when the airplane are taking off I was like okay let's go and that then where I was sitting I my sister was sitting with another um person who was coming from Uganda I was like oh where are you going my sister's like I'm going to Utah so like she was like you're gonna like it there there's good like a lot of mountains my sister was nagging. It was like, we didn't know, like, really know good English. But yeah. then, like, like, all the English that we knew was, like, grabbing books that people throw away. We would read those. We would try, like, to understand, teach ourselves from those books how to read. So it was kind of, like, interesting to just, like, always shake your head or smile mm-hmm. when someone is talking to you and not, don't know how to respond <laughs> to what they're saying. You just give them a smile, be like, "Ah." I'm trying. (laughs) What were your first couple weeks like? What were the feelings that, what are the emotions that go through your head? New country, complete new climate, uh, new language, new culture, completely new. It's like a whole new set of challenges. You're no longer worried about your life or or your safety. But now it is like, how do I survive this new world? So what are the emotions that go through your head in those first couple of weeks? How old were you? You were 13. Okay. So yeah. you're right in the heart of teenager, which is hard enough. Yeah. What are those emotions like? We got on the airport and there we were pressed in the refugee camp. I mean, we were pressed in foster care, foster care system. So we had to go with a, to live with a different family. And my aunt and my brothers, they went to leave. 
by themselves. So we took our separate ways at the airport. Wow. How hard was that? That was hard. My aunt was someone who I lived with my, the rest of my life. For no doubt, I knew she would take a bullet for me. Like, for sure. Like, I had no doubt. She was that. your mom, basically, right? She raised you. Yeah. So that was really hard to take a separate ways. I felt sad, even if I didn't want to show it to, the, to her new family. That night in my bed, I kind of like cried. I was scared of what, what does the world have to offer me now? In my back of my mind, I'm like, just a meaningless girl. How am I going to survive? I don't even know how to write or read well. How is this going to work out for me? Being in the foster care system was tough. Every month we had to go to a judge. Also at the same time, balancing two cultures because my culture is who I am. And I can't just like throw that away and grab another culture. If I throw that away, it would be me throwing myself away. Then trying to know, oh, this is when I should use African culture and this one I should use American culture. Trying to like sometimes when I spoke with my foster parents or my foster family, if they did not understand me in the English I was using, which was not that good, I'll get really frustrated. I was like, my point is not being crossed over. I needed to be understood. Back then, it was like new food. I didn't like pizza, yo. I hated pizza. <laughs> <laughs> pizza? Wait, but that's the best thing America has to offer is our pizza, and you didn't like it? <laughs> I didn't like pizza. pizza oh, like, no. no. The moment I tasted pizza, it was gross to me. I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> what about hamburgers? Did you like hamburgers? That's the only other thing we have. Nope, no hamburgers, but I fall in love with McDonald's chicken nuggets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the grossest thing we have to offer in America, chicken nuggets. Awesome. <laughs> McDonald's chicken nuggets, I loved those so much. You don't know, like, you have no idea. I just loved them. Like, that was the only food, like, I could actually eat. And macaron and cheese, those became, like, my favorite food. What? Until I grew out of them. Then uh, I grew out of those, then I grew to love pizza, little by little. (laughs) Food was just, like, sandwiches, even to this point. I don't, I don't, I don't try, like, the ham, like you put in salad, is a big no for me. No, really, <laughs> salad is a big no no for me. Even to this point, I have tried. Even to this point, salad is a no. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> so okay, so during this time, you just said you laid in your bed and you said, "I'm just a meaningless girl." Did you feel like you had any power over what was going to be happening the rest of your life? Is there a feeling of, I am just at the mercy of the people around me and what they decide for me? Yeah. For me, I had hope. The sense of being like scared of my day tomorrow, I don't know what my life will be next. That kind of like went away. But sometimes I had the scare of like, are these people truly going to protect me as their own, like my aunt did? I was scared to the point where, like, are they going to want to make me do what they want but not try to figure out what I want as a person? Since I didn't know how to read, would I sign things that I don't know? Like, all this stuff was in the movies, kind of, like, reflected back. Are they going to be controlling? Controlling, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to wear that. And remind you that I was in a, like, uh, um, moment household. Also, like, being for them trying to convert us to become, like, Mormon, putting on the rules, what you're supposed to wear and what you're not supposed to wear, that kind of, like, came in touch. Because, like, as we wore anything, basically, as long as it did not show our body in frontal acting in a bad way. So that became, like, another challenge that we had to overcome. Like, oh, in this household, you don't wear this. There were set of rules that we had to follow which like we didn't know have rules like we lived as long as we drank water the next day came we survived that was our life we did not have like a household rule oh you're not supposed to do this or you're not supposed to wear this when you go here ask ask permission do this also another thing that 
I kept running the foster care system. If we had like a, we would not sleep. Even if we made new friends, we would not sleep at their house. We had to ask permission to go anywhere. Like when you, they had, even if let's say we had a trip to go somewhere, we had to tell a caseworker. A caseworker had to go tell the judge. They had to discuss it to make sure was it safe for us to go. It was hard. If, for example, like we started going to Calvary Church, it was hard. Like they would have youth stuff, like traveling. We won't go because we knew like it's to the point where, oh, no, this is just too much because you have to ask permission and everything. A judge has to sign to make sure they know where you're going. So it was really tough to, to just be in that kind of setting environment. Also, like, I feel like in in the foster care system with the officers that we were with, they truly didn't care except our case workers. Our case workers, our, our case worker actually like did fight, did a lot for us. To me, she became she didn't only become like a case worker; she became a mother figure to me. She's someone I can tell something, some someone I can go running to. Oh, this happened, like. Something like you'd go home, you'd be like, oh, mom, you know, this and this happened today. What do you think? So kind of thing. That's what she became to me. To the point where I'd call her even like midnight. Let's talk. I can't fall asleep. This is going on. This is why. No, that's what she became to me. And she got fired in the middle of nowhere for her to just do like being there. I mean, that kind of like she got fired my when I graduated from high school and I was like I can't stay in this system it's just not there because I know the next person they're not gonna have best interest also they fired her without even asking us her kids like how was she working with us or what what was she doing with us they just fired her that's someone I already built a connection with that's someone I that's basically fired the mother that I was looking up to. So I could no longer stay in the foster care system if she wasn't there. So like I left foster care system with bad terms with the people who are not like all the things that they promised, they couldn't do them. And she's done. So me and my siblings, we were like, the, as according to my caseworker, we were the good kids in the system. We focused on school. We did everything that was required of us. But at the end of the day, they did not like really provide us with the things that we needed to succeed. But they provided those those things to the kids who were not succeeding at all. So it was like also it was it was no they were not being fair at the end of the day. So. so for the kids who had more problems or created more problems, that's where the time and energy went. Yeah. For those kids that were maintaining at least the minimum standards or you like trying to achieve, there was really no resources to help you get further. There was no attention given. It's kind of, I think that's how it seems to work a lot where it's like the biggest problems get all of the resources, but there is, there are no resources to help you succeed. Were you able to keep in touch with your family during this time? Your aunt, was she 18? When you got here, was she old enough that she didn't go into foster care? Yeah, my older brother and my two older brothers and my aunt didn't go in foster care. Those were old enough. They um, went to live on their own. Do you know why and they couldn't take you? Why they couldn't keep you with them? They said my aunt can't take care of her. She needs to get herself together, like learn English, like so get a big house. Yeah, it was all complicated. I was like, I was kind of frustrated and mad about that. I'm like, she raised us the rest of our lives. Now is the thing they're going to say, like, she's not a sticker of risk. But they're like, we're giving her more time so she can get she can get herself together. At the same time, I didn't want to be selfish. I mean, she has got sacrificed a lot. She has been there. I didn't want to be a bad. I'm like, okay, let's give her time to get herself together. Maybe we'll go live with her. And going to school here, like, uh, we're... Our family, our foster family, the foster foster family was in Herman. So in Herman was no diversity. Like it's rare, it's rare to see a colored person. So rare. Right. A lot of people that are in Utah listening to this are going to agree with that. I think when you move outside of Salt Lake City in Utah, it's few and far between. The diversity is minimal in Utah. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Yeah. That's going to like make me miss more of my culture. Like. Where I come from, music can be playing anywhere. You can be dancing in really so <laughs> quiet. Yeah. Quiet. You will see people outside in the evening, in the neighborhoods, taking small walks, riding bikes. 
my first time in school was I did pretty good. Like I got a 4.0 in eighth mm-hmm. grade. <laughs> I got awards for being a good student. It was like it was really interesting. Since then, I was like, I can do it. I know I can do it. I just have to focus. I know that. I know what, no matter what comes in my life, I have survived a lot and I can do this and I will get my life back to where I want it to be. Uh, also, I read it, um, a book by Nick. I can't pronounce his last name. <laughs> he has no arms and legs. I was like, if he can accomplish to be who he is today and me, who God has blessed with arms and legs, I can do that. So here it was the inspiration of me finding myself, of valuing myself again, and believing myself. Here's the thing. The whole world can believe in you. If you don't believe in yourself first, I don't think you get where you want to be. You have to believe in yourself first before anyone else can believe in you for sure. That's amazing that you came to this point in your life because it sounds like you had to come get through that journey on your own with and it wasn't necessarily the support of the system here that helped you get there, which I feel like kind of breaks my heart, to be honest, because I'm sure there's kids that come and go through your experience that don't have that same drive. They don't have that spark in them that you have. So I'm so glad we're going to get to it in a minute, but I'm so glad that you have your organization to try and help other kids. I want to ask you a few more questions about your experience as a kid. Do you feel looking back that you would have done better in those years? Granted, you you seem to be doing really well right now, but do you think you would have done better in those years had you been allowed to stay with your aunt and your family? When I look back, I feel like I could have had it in different ways. For example, like living with a white family helped me learn English first. It kind of like pushed me out of my comfort zone. I said like living with my aunt, I could have been in my comfort zone. Also. Living with a white family opened my eyes in different ways, in different experience. The way they were living their life completely was different from how my aunt and my brothers were living. They were trying to figure it out too. For them, they already knew what they were doing. This is where they were born. This is where like they were raised. And they have been here for longer. So we would stay up night with them until six. I mean, until 12 a.m., still doing a homework for them, trying to help us with the homeworks and stuff, where they got in touch with the teachers, talk to the teachers that would help us, and which is something I feel like my ah, my brothers could have not done that. For sure, they played a big part in my education for me to succeed and to get where I was. Because like, I would go to school at 6 a.m. My foster mom would drive me and my brother that time, and I will come back home at 6 p.m. So that was like my drive, my desire of learning, of trying to catch up. Because I remember this one time I we took a test in class and I was, me and another student, we are the only two who got 100% on there and other kids didn't do good. So I sat in class with the other girl as we watched them, we take the test. And when we went to the rec center in Herman, my math teacher saw my mom and she was like, oh, this are just doing good. So like, that to me was like, it really helped me know that I can do it. I, I just have to find that woman inside me who has been hiding inside me for a while, trying like to hide or covering from people. For sure, I feel like I won't say that we could have done much better. I was, I don't, I, that question, I feel like we could have been behind, but we could have pushed up compared to the drive we had by then. But for them, they made it more easier for us to get where we want to be. Did you have during that time as a foster child, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that's uh, what would happen to, I didn't, never thought through that, that that's what would happen to a child as a refugee to be put in the foster system here. Did you have connection during that time to the bigger refugee community at large? Because like you said, Herman, extremely white, extremely Mormon, very quiet. But like our joint friend, Amy Harmer, there are a lot of services available for that community. And there's a lot of cultural events and things that go on. But did you get connected to that where you could have people that you could relate to? No, we were not connected to that community at all. Um, We got connected to the community when my brothers became foster care. So we moved with them. We moved okay. back to them. That's when we became connected and I became more involved in the community. 
back then we did not go to events, but like it was a requirement for foster parents to take us to our like market, like African market to look for food, those kind of things. So it was not a requirement. At the same time, like looking back, my foster parents, like they did not like really get try to know us. They just knew whatever was on whatever was on the file, whatever they told them. And that file kind of already defined who you are. I feel like there were more experience within us that the files did not have. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Did you get to stay connected to your aunt and your brothers during that time? So we used to go to our aunts on the weekends. We'd go visit them and stuff. We would go like Sundays, I think. Sunday, then we'll come back. It go to the time where we would go. And if we came back late, our family would be like mad at us for us coming late. Also, when we went to visit them, we didn't want to leave. We'd come in the car like sad, mad. Like our mood would be low. It was like, we didn't want to leave. That was like, that was, I feel like that was a big challenge with my foster family. Maybe us coming mad or like coming sad in the car made, made them feel in tape of a certain way. And it made us, we wanted to stay longer, but we couldn't. We were like rules. We were in other people's hands. We couldn't decide for ourselves. That became a big one. She started saying, oh, you would just go to your aunties like on, we used to go on Friday, then Sunday we'll come back. She said it would start going. It became like, she would have us the whole week, but when it came to my aunties on the weekend, it came like more tight or more rules towards it. Then I was like, I can't take this anymore. So me, I, my twin brother and my older sister, we ran away one day after school. We took a train to downtown from Harriman all the way to downtown and we called the cops. This was the way I remember. I feel like this is like one of the dumbest things we have ever done <laughs> together. <laughs> we called the cops. We didn't know how to speak English. We just told them, oh, we want to go to live with our aunt. We don't want to live with our foster family anymore. And they're like, who are you? What? <laughs> this one cop, he started offering us lollipops. And we were like, no, we don't want some. No, we just want to go live with our aunt. And I guess they looked us up in the system. And they found us somehow. They called the Herman police. The Herman police went and told our foster parents. Our foster parents drove there. Then they called a caseworker. Then they called the CCS, the office that we were with. And they took us to the office. Um, to the office. So from there, we were separated from each other. They took me somewhere. I don't remember even the place in the middle of nowhere where there's no tracks, there's nothing. They were saying the office and the foster parents were like, oh, I'm the one who leading my siblings to do all the things that they're doing. Like, <laughs> you're I'm the ringleader. Okay, the one. <laughs> so they took me in the middle of nowhere. Then they took my brother, my twin brother, driver. Then later on, my little sister and my my older sister, they went to West Valley. It took them two weeks to find a home for me. So they took me to Saratoga Springs, so, which was like a bit <laughs> Even more remote than Harriman, yeah. Yeah. So it became challenging. I loved my this new family. Well, I, it doesn't mean like I didn't love the other family. I loved them with my all high. Just the fact that I needed like to live with my aunt. I needed like, this new world to experience with her. For me to get used to it and get maybe get out of my comfort zone more, but they pulled me out, 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 out of my comfort zone without being given a warning or a chance to just pull there like you don't have a choice. Living with this, they were, they had a lot of kids, which was fun. I helped them do homework. It was always fun to play with them. That kind of like warmed up my spirit. I kind of like love kids. Uh, so it was like really interesting with them. I lived with them for three months. Uh, then we always still went and they, for them, they still drove me. For them, like they did not like force me, like try to bring missionaries kind of stuff. They just let me be like whatever I needed help with. I asked them, they helped, they served, you know. Uh, for them, I feel like they were more interested in my life. They asked more questions. They didn't like, it was not just about the phone. Oh, how do you do this back home? Or like, how does this is it being done? My foster father, Philip, then he would help me do my assignments, like homework. My mother would come. Like the 
mother Ariana, she did not have like a daughter. We had that connection, like we'd take walks. It was very interesting, like we'd take walks, talk, ride bikes and stuff. So it was really for for those three months, it was really they didn't like put on rules me going to see my aunt. So it was easier than we had like a dinner for me saying goodbye. And I remember me and uh, Mama Ariana standing in, in Walmart, imagining tomorrow I'm leaving and we all busted in tears. Oh, that's good. <laughs> we all busted in tears. Then I remember one of the boys coming saying, two older women are crying in Walmart. <laughs> 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 yeah, <that's funny. laughs> so it, it was really interesting it was really my life has not been boring it has been crazy times fun times <laughs> one more thing and then we'll kind of move to where you're at today but what was your experience like in school did you feel different did you feel accepted did you feel judged what was that like and not only are you black in a majority white school, but also you're from a different country. You have a thick accent. You have a lot of things about you that are very, very different. How did that work in school specifically with the other kids? The other kids stared a lot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sometimes, like, especially after me passing my math test, I feel like there were, there were like more, felt like I was more intimidating I did not have like a connection of friends that they would say that like a kid would have in middle school. Like I didn't have that. I feel like the kids who wanted to become my friends were like showing me off kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> like I was like, yeah, I no, you were the novelty. Like they were, like, showing me off kind of thing. But also there were kids from my neighborhood, which I didn't have some lunch with them. I always say, I always said like hi to them whenever I saw them in the hallway. Sometimes I ate lunch by myself. I did not like really know English. Like for them, they would be like interesting asking questions and stuff. Uh, but I did not know how to respond to that. Like, like I didn't know how to answer their questions. I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, I smile at them. With my teachers, it helped read a lot. It was one on one after school. They showed me pictures sometimes to communicate. Me and my twin brother, since we went to Copper Mountain Middle School. We would, during our test, our science test, they'll like kind of like give us pictures for the test to make sense. So our teachers kind of came together for them to work together for us to be able to get where we want to be. So especially our science teachers, our math teachers, spending more time with them, that became really nice and it really helped us. But then my focus was not how people viewed me. Even if back of my mind, it was like, oh, I'm a meaningless girl. How can I do that? By the time as I started doing good on school and just, I was so focused on school. I was like, education is going to be my only way out. I have to focus. I have to do this. I, I pushed myself a lot. So I didn't care what other people thought of that. Because like people would always come at my locker and stare. Like I just stand there and stare. Oh, sometimes, like this one day after school, I was when going to my locker to grab my stuff. I remember this kid coming, finding me in my locker and pushing me in my locker. <laughs> I really never understood that point. Like, why did you do it? Like, I never, I never understood that. And I, I kind of did not want to go like home and tell, tell my foster parents. But of course, they will go to school and say this happened. Then it will bring a whole lot of drama. Then during that time, I was like learning about the history, the slavery history that happened in America, trying to learn what's going on, trying to get a whole idea. It was like still start, like I was kind of in the middle where like I am scared to go in front of this happened. They may not believe me. I can't find myself because I don't know the language. So I just let it be. If that happened, it happened. It was tough with the English English, but with my teachers, they made it more easier for them coming together, working together and making it possible for me to get an education. That's really interesting that you bring up like learning about the history of Black Americans and probably the whole concept of racism based on the color of your skin. That probably wasn't anything. Were you aware of that when you were living in uh, DRC or Uganda? Was that even a topic that was discussed? That idea of being racist based on skin color? No, it wasn't. Back home, like back home, this is the kind of racist they have, like tribe racist. 
Yeah, which you experienced. Yeah, which I experienced for sure. I don't know, like, if you look at a step a certain way, like, as I said, like, they can tell by your features. Like, some tribe would be like, oh, we don't like Bahama, or we don't like Sudanese, or we don't like Baronanese type thing. For sure, like, tribes and stuff. So that was the racism which was there. I didn't know, like, by your skin of color, like, would be defined. No, I didn't know that. That one was, like, I always went on the computer research because, like, they had an office. So I'd go on the YouTube and stuff, watch things like that, like kind of try to read through Wikipedia and stuff like that. That's how I kind of like started getting the idea that like, oh, and a lot of places I'll be identified as this person. Also, like the fact that like in history class, if they'd be talking about slavery and I was the only black girl in there, kids would yeah. be me. I'd be like, I don't know nothing. Like, this is me too. <laughs> They look at you like you're going to have an opinion on it. You're like, I'm learning it with you. Was that scary for you when you learned that? Did that put fear in you of like, is this something that I'm going to have to deal with? How did that concept sit with you when you understood that it's something that people deal with in America? For sure, it did. I got scared for sure. Like, I'm like, oh, anything could happen to me just because I'm Black. I won't be able to find myself. Oh, my set of story won't be able to be heard. That kind of put in my current me and I started like doing things in a type of a way that I would not get in trouble or like I didn't have a normal teenager and stuff. So it's kind of like in a point when you just have to do school, do this, do the right things, like follow the book. Don't like mess up. If you mess up a little bit, it's going to be a big one. So it's that one, that little thing you may do may hold you back a lot of many ways. So it's given me that fear even if sometimes I try to ignore it, but even when I went to do something, I always think, how is this going to be fine? How, how is this going to be seen? How is it going to be viewed? So, yeah, it's for sure, for a lot of many times I have, even today, still like the point where, oh, I have to be careful what I do. Even now you feel that, that you have to lay low, stay small kind of thing? Yeah, kind of thing, for sure, yes. In some in some situation, in some ways, for sure, yeah. African, for sure, but at the same time, is like, they don't differentiate that, like, you're African or African-American. You're Black. That's enough for them to, whoever, to, your set of story not to being hard. So, yeah, for sure. What situations do you feel like that comes into play? Like, when do you feel that judgment or that racism the most? For example, when the local thing happened, that one, I was for sure like was scared. Like, okay, no, this may this may bring more or may play into more than what I think. Also, some of my teachers for sure have like back then, my one of my science teachers has told me like in this country, you're going to get it worse than other kids for sure. I was like, just being you being black back then when she told me i was like what does this supposed to mean for her saying that kind of like pushed me doing more of this or like of things of doing it more like for example in my high school i attended itinerary sally college high school and i was the only we were like black three black kids even like the questions that people would ask you sometimes be like oh did you live with the lion and stuff is like would you really live with a lion Eh? <laughs> like, I'll be like, oh yeah, I went to the forest and I lived with yeah. the lion, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you should just so, make like, up really cool stories to tell people. <laughs> yeah, like, uh-huh. Sometimes like the question that people ask, I understand like you want to ask those questions, educate yourself, but sometimes there's questions that you should be already answering mm-hmm. yourself. No one can really live with a lion without being eaten by it. <laughs> so... <laughs> kind of like it's interesting like even just like sometimes being in a room for example here at the U like just being in a classroom and being the only black woman it feels like it feels like you're here like people like trying to dominate you feeling that your voice is not being heard in the whole class those does play a big part in it too so yeah to this point it still happens but I have faced it in a big in like schools and stuff, like Mm -hmm. events, yeah. A big picture question here, but looking back at your childhood specifically, and then we're going to move to who you are right now, but looking back at the two halves of your childhood, you had the whole experience of fleeing your country, living in a refugee camp, being 
treated as a criminal to just try and even be placed here in America. And then the second half of being here in America and all of the trials that you've explained there. Looking at it, which one do you think was harder on you? Which one was more challenging and more emotional for you? Growing up without my parents. That one was a tough one. Even today, I just finished reading a book called Motherless Stories. That kind of like answered most of the questions I have. I had. I didn't grow up in an environment like, oh, this is my dad, this is my brother, and this is how marriage is supposed to go. Or this is how it's supposed to be. Like thinking, oh, if I get married, how am I going to feel that in my own marriage? How am I going to be a wife? I don't know how to be that. How am I going to be a mother to someone, well, I did not have one for myself. That is the big one, the emotional one. Even today, it's still like haunting me. It's still like, I'm still thinking about it. Even if I'm still 19, but at some point it's going to hit and I just like want to be, know what to do. Which like, I have interviewed some mothers uh, I have done a project about mothers. The thing I found that no one can prepare you to really be a mother. But at the same time, I feel like having experience with your own mom, it does help you that way you raise your own kids. But I feel like those ones are still like passion ones for me. It was hard feeling like imagining if they were there, maybe like could have played that different for me. But also imagining that sometimes I didn't get a chance of being a kid. Definitely, I have heard a lot of people saying, I think totally different from the kids of my age. Some kids will be, oh, I want this, I want this. And I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like trying to prepare that future for my kids to make sure like they don't have to go through what I went through. So that one has been like the challenging one. I want the next generation of my family to start higher than where I have started. That's a good goal. So Let's talk about who you are today. You're a student. You've made it to the U. What are you studying right now? I am doing criminology, health, society, and police, and I'm mainly in entrepreneurship. Wow. And you've started an, a, an organization called Undefeated. Let's talk about that, what you do with that, what your goal is with that, and what does that undefeated mean? So the goal for that is to teach and inspire people. Right now, I have come out with the merchandise, the t-shirts and the hoodies. You can order those at www.speakandheated.com. The goal is to inspire people, to teach people, knowing that it doesn't matter. Like Your past should not have to define you. Your past should be your motivation to keep going forward. Because like, I feel like there is a lot of people survive a lot of things. They don't like realize it or they don't use that power of surviving to keep going on with their life or to take another risk for that. So it's basically to inspire you, knowing that like you're strong, there's someone inside you, deeply in you, and you have everything in you to succeed. So the hashtag speak and fit it, it means like as people spoke bad things about me, I believed in them, I kind of let that find me. So speak and fit it, speak up, uh, posterior about others, speak life upon yourself. Also, the things that we speak out of our mouth do create. I don't know how, how to explain it for it to make No, that sense. makes sense. The things we speak out of our mouth is what we create. That makes total sense. Yeah. So basically that's the organization and I'm a motivated speaker. You can book me by email or you, or you can go my my Instagram too. So that works out. Let so, me ask you a question that I, I think I kind of skipped over here. How did you move from saying I'm a worthless girl because you said you had those thoughts all through junior high and maybe even high school. What was that turning point for you that went from I'm a worthless girl to, hey, I actually have control of my future and I have worth. And now I'm going to share that message. How did you make that transition? I just got that going around my head, thinking that what other people have said about me. I used to work at my school. So I like vacuumed at my high school. One day I was like, why do they have to define me? Why can't I define me? Why do I give all the power to the world and the people to have to say what they have to say or to have to define me? Why can't I define me? Why can't I know me? I felt like the world knew me the more I knew me. Like they knew me better than I knew myself. It was just like, I'm tired. I need to become me. I know there's someone inside me. I can find myself. From there, I just started doing things. Like I would say good things about myself. I would know what the negative voices that people would try to say about me. 
try to get all the negativity out of my head that has taken space from my past. Just clear my mind up knowing who I am. From there, like, as long as you decide, as long as you get tired of something, you'll find yourself. You for sure, you push yourself and find yourself. But at the end of the day, I knew that I had purpose. I had a purpose in this world. I was not just a minigos girl. And I knew that I can do more than what I imagined. So from there, I just decided to find myself and push myself to be who I am today. What do you want the rest of your life to look like? Where do you want to go from here? Graduate college, get a good job, inspire people, change people, go back home and try to end child marriage, go back home and educate people. Where's home, DRC or Uganda? For now it's Uganda. <laughs> For now it's Uganda because uh, DRC, I don't like, really have a lot of people I know there, but mostly a lot of people I know in Uganda. So Uganda has truly become my home. And you want to go back and change things there? Yeah. Show the people who have been there for me, like who have helped me, show them like that all your work, all your words, all your effort, they don't go to nothing. I took that and I made it something out of it. You're amazing, Desanj. Your message is amazing. The journey that you've gone through is incredible. And the fact that you have come out with a positive message to share and inspire other people is just, it's amazing. I'm grateful that you're there because I'm sure that there are so many kids that are going through probably the same feelings. Maybe they're not refugees and they don't have the same actual experiences, but they have the same feelings that you had of feeling a little bit worthless or feeling like they're not in control of their destiny. And so I think that you have such a a powerful message to share with kids of all colors, all races, all backgrounds, experiences. They all experience that exact same thing. And it's amazing that you can be an example of that, of coming from where you came from and accomplishing what you have accomplished and what I have no doubt you have left to accomplish in life. You're only 19. You've probably got so much more to do. This is just, I would assume, the very, very beginning of what you're going to bring to this world. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. Tell everybody where we can find you on Instagram and, and websites. So my Instagram is undefeated at undefeated45. Undefeated45, okay. Yeah, undefeated45. And my website is www.speakundefeated.com. Also, my modeling account is just my last name at K-U-E-N-I-H-I-R-A. Oh, yeah. We haven't even mentioned the fact that you're a model and the pictures are... <laughs> gorgeous, very, very just bright, colorful, really kind of an exotic look. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of She's Simply Amazing. If you are loving this podcast and getting so much out of it, please help us grow it. You can subscribe to the podcast and share each episode that you love. You can join our community on Instagram by following at Simply Amazing Podcast. And please, please, if you're loving this, go leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. Those reviews really help us grow. We'll see you next week.